Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. My mom used to actually say this about the Bible. You can sum up the Bible in three words. Obey, obey, obey. Megan Phelps Roper grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church, a religious cult out of Topeka, Kansas, that's often called the most obnoxious and rabid hate group in America. Megan was a fervent believer in everything Westboro stood for. But when she was in her mid-20s, Megan decided to leave it all behind, her family, her community, and everything she had ever believed to be true. It felt like this physical, like I, like I had a giant boulder sitting on my chest, and I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't see around it, and I had no vision of the future. I had no idea what my life was going to look like. Today, a story of someone who was absolutely persuaded by terrible ideas, until one day, she changed her mind. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show that dives deep into the world of change and hopefully gets us to think differently about change in our own lives. All right, Megan, so I'd love to start from the beginning. Your grandfather started the Westboro Baptist Church, right? Tell me more about the church. So what did you guys believe in? We believed that we were the elect of God, this very small remnant that was bound for heaven, and that basically almost everyone else in the world um, was headed for hell, that God had condemned them because of their sins. And so for me, how I came into that was when I was five years old, uh, my family started protesting, protesting all across the country, uh, usually several times a week and every single day in my hometown. 
our most infamous message uh, was God hates fags. So it started as a protest movement against the LGBTQ community. Um, but as I say, like it, it very quickly expanded to include everybody who wasn't part of our church. Mm-hmm. Were you able to comprehend what those signs were even saying? Did you understand what it is that you were actually protesting? Just bring me back to that scene. Yeah. So after church, it started after church one, one Sunday, we kind of piled into um, our vehicles and drove. It was about a half a mile. This park was about a half a mile from, from the church. And, and we walked out there with these signs. I couldn't read at the time, of course. It was just before I started kindergarten. And I remember, you know, people, of course, were, were very angry. The messages on our signs, uh, you know, one of the very early ones was, uh, said, gays are worthy of death. And, you know, people saw those signs and were immediately inflamed. You know, people would start, like, driving their cars at us, jumping out of their cars, like, parking in the middle of the street, um, you know, this busy thoroughfare, and to come after us on foot. And so, you know, my dad and, and the kind of older you know, men in the church would come and try to, you know, form a kind of barricade between us and, you know, counter-protesters and, and people who came out to attack us. And at the time, of course, I did not understand Westboro's theology in all of its um, particulars. But the main theme that I understood was about obedience. And this was a theme that was, you know, constantly harped upon in my family. So it's the idea that if you obey God, he'll bless you. And if you disobey God, then he will curse you. And so my family taught me that this was the definition of love, what we were doing. To go out and warn people of the consequences of their sins, that if they continue to go down this, this path of supporting, you know, the LGBTQ community or fornication or adultery, you know, which my family and church define as uh, to include divorce and remarriage, to go down this path is to incur necessarily the curses of God. We considered it a great privilege that we got to go and speak the truth into this, you know, Gramps, the, the language that he used, is we get to go in and inject a little Bible truth into this insane orgy of fag lies. That's how we put it. Wow. And that's how they talked about, you know, death generally. Um, it could never be just, you know, somebody dying of natural causes, you know, of old age or something. It's like, no, this was a punishment from God because this person was a sinner. I was kind of marinating in that ideology all the time. It was absolutely something that I lived and breathed and desperately wanted to, you know, to be a good and proper advocate for. So when I graduated from college and, you know, I learned about Twitter, it, it was something that I really, I thought, okay, well, this could be an, a new avenue for us to get this message out. Um, can you tell me a bit more about what your Twitter exchanges were like? Um, so... Yeah, when I got on Twitter, one of the first people that I targeted, um, because the Jewish community at that point was very much in focus of the church, and it was around the time of the high holidays, and I reached out to this man named David Abbottball, who ran a blog called Julicious. And I think my my first tweet said something, was some, I mean, to him was something about how about Jewish people needing to really repent. And, you know, I, I thought he mistook the tone of my tweet because he responded with, thanks, Megan, that's handy, what with Yom Kippur coming up. <laughs> um, so then I, I like made sure the next message wouldn't be misunderstood. I told him that Jewish customs were dead rote rituals that would lead them all to hell. So that started this, you know, kind of back and forth where at the, at the beginning, you know, it, it started out very hostile, but very quickly David changed his tone and, and not just David, but there was, there were other people on the platform too, who took this kind of more 
relaxed. Is that, is that, I'm not even sure if that's the right, quite the right word. This, it just, it just wasn't as aggressive. They were, they were willing to ask questions and to be calm and to really try to understand where I was coming from instead of just assuming the worst of me and my family and our motives. And their willingness to listen ultimately allowed them to find these internal inconsistencies in our doctrine. And so David actually ended up being the first person to find one of those internal inconsistencies. And it was really mind-blowing for me. And I, I refused to admit it to him at the time. You know, he had clearly, you know, pointed out this contradiction. And it wasn't something that I could argue my way out of. And coming from a family full of lawyers who had been teaching me this ideology every day, you know, essentially from the time I was old enough to understand language, for me not to have the answer uh, felt, you know, it, it, I, I felt like at a, at a complete loss in that moment. So I didn't have an answer for the contradiction. I shut down the conversation and then I just stopped talking to him for a while. What was the contradiction? It was, you know, it's, it's so funny looking back because it's a relatively, you know, small point of theology or seemingly so. It was about a sign that we had that said death penalty for fags. And I should say, I, I, the only reason I continue to use that language is because I think it's important to, to show kind of the depths of, you know, the destructiveness of our, of our message. Um, so that's what the sign said. It was calling for the death penalty for gay people. And you know, David pointed out, well, didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone? And, you know, we had an answer for that because people would, you know, throw that verse at us. And, and what, what we would say is, we're not casting stones, we're preaching words, like we're not actually out trying to, you know, murder anybody. And David, you know, pointed out the obvious, you know, problem with that argument, which is it's like, yeah, but you're advocating that the government cast stones, which that he's exactly right. That's what we were doing. And it had never occurred to me. So again, this, this is the moment that I first kind of, you know, feel like, whoa, like, I, I feel like I've missed something here. And then, but then David kept going. He said, and didn't your mother have your oldest brother out of wedlock? And we had an answer for that too. And the answer was that, you know, God doesn't require sinlessness. That's not the standard of God. He requi requires repentance. And of course, my mom repented of that sin. And it's not like she's, you know, she was still committing fornication. And David said, yeah, but if you had instituted the death penalty for that sin, she would have been killed and would not have had the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. And that realization that like my, my family would not exist without the mercy that my mother experienced, like the fact that she lived in a society where she was not murdered for that sin. Um, or executed, rather, for that sin. Uh, it, it, I was just, like I said, at a complete loss. It's interesting because David's approach with you reminds me of, of this concept in cognitive science called moral reframing. And it basically says that we're more effective at changing people's minds when we ground our arguments in ways that affirm rather than threaten their moral values. So rather than you know, trying to undermine the entire belief system, right? Rather than trying to challenge all the axioms, right? The fundamental ideology, you you root your arguments in basically the language they speak. And it seems like what David was doing was grounding his arguments to you in terms of existing values that you had, right? And that had he gone, 
you know, the extra step of saying, Megan, what you think is absolutely batshit crazy, uh, it probably would not have worked as well. Can you can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. This is so amazing. I didn't realize there was a word for that. I, I hadn't heard that phrase, moral reframing. Um, the questions and the doubts often start with internal inconsistencies or, or the group's failure to live up to its own standards, that this is, this is how doubt creeps in initially. And then the system overall can ultimately be undermined, but it has to start with those very small things. And like you said, you are affirming or, or utilizing you know, source material that they already find compelling. But you are also, you know, by asking questions and trying to understand where they're coming from, you know, you are signaling to them that they're being heard, which tends to make people more receptive to hearing about your ideas as well. So, I mean, so when David is asking me all these questions, David and, you know, a lot of other people on Twitter, when they're asking me these questions, you're hearing kind of, you know, other, learning about other parts of their, their lives and such, you know, you're developing these, essentially, you know, these relationships, however distant and kind of tenuous it is. And that was, I, I experienced that over and over again on Twitter until there was this, you know, community of people that I, that I did feel like I had some kind of connection to, you know, that was the beginning of the process of, it, it was like the thread that started to unravel the rest of the tapestry of Westboro's ideology in my mind. We'll be right back with a slight change of plans. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for 25% off. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. 
If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Megan's faith in Westboro was beginning to falter. In the spring of 2011, another crack in her belief system formed when a group of Westboro's male leaders turned on Megan's mom. They said she wasn't following the rules. They called her a troublemaker, and they stripped her of all her church duties. Megan's mom was devastated. The church had meant everything to her. It was the first time I'd, I'd watched it happen to other members of the church, and I was never close enough to those people to to really challenge it, even in my own mind. And seeing it happen to my mother, who I spent so much time with, so, so much of my day, to he- hear the things that, that the other church members were saying about her, uh, I, I knew that they were wrong. And it was a really terrifying thing for me to be feeling these things and to be rejecting the judgment of the church on any issue I, it made me feel as if you know Satan was whispering in my ear and this was a test from God and I was failing it because I didn't just go along with it the way that everybody else seemed to be. Mm-hmm. Was there one moment in particular where you felt, okay, now I'm fully beyond the point of return? Yeah. There was this um, moment in the summer of 2012. So I, w- I was painting in uh, a friend's basement with my sister we were supposed to be covering up these purple stripes with white paint. And I just... <laughs> I advocate for that. I, I'm not a fan of purple stripes on the wall. <laughs> you know, funny thing, in, in hindsight, like the, the more I tried to cover that, that, cover that paint up, 
nothing was working. You could still see the darkness underneath. <laughs> Is this a metaphor? I know. <laughs> and it's like, it just was, it was, it was a horrible moment. So I was painting in the basement with my sister. We're painting opposite walls. So our backs are to each other. This incredibly sad music is playing uh, on the speaker. What was the what was the song? It was called "Just One" by Blind Pilot, and you know, and I, I'm barely hearing you know the music because at this point, you know, all of those it, all of those questions and doubts just building and building in my mind, and there's the level of shame and regret and humiliation that I felt in that moment. It's hard to describe because I mean, if you if you imagine like what it would be like to to look back and think that you had spent decades of your life um, sowing doom and discord to the rest of the world, offering nothing but condemnation, going to people in their most vulnerable moments and telling them that God was punishing them, that they deserved you know this this horrible thing that's happened to their family. You know, so I'm looking back at all of those things and realizing that oh my God, this wasn't the work of God. This wasn't, you know, a necessary divine truth. No, this was Gramps. You know, this was his understanding of the world and it's completely wrong. And so to, to, to have this thing that I had seen as such a blessing and this just, what a beautiful gift to go and speak for God. It's like having this beautiful gem in your hand and then suddenly realize that it's like, it's, it's not a gem. It's like turning to like ashes. It was just horrifying. So w- was there a particular song lyric that precipitated these thoughts? You know, the line was, will I break and will I bow if I cannot let it go? Will I break and will I bow? And I'm like, I'm sitting there again, holding on to all of these questions. And like the song continues. And I can't, I know that I can't let those questions go. There was never, I was never going to be able to let it go. And then, you know, it gets to a, a little, a few lines later. And he says, I can't believe we get just one life, you know, is, is what he's talking about. And the idea of, you know, having spent all at that point, all of my one life, um, doing nothing but but going around hurting people with all the best intentions. We had done this thing that had caused so much destruction in so many lives, including our own. And the idea of, of spending the rest of my life that way, I, I just, that was the moment I, I knew that I, I had just gone too far down the path in my mind, that I would never be able to go back and pretend. I actually thought in that moment, like, could I pretend for the sake of my families, just so I could keep them, to not have to lose them. You know, I'm the third of 11 children, um, you know, 50-some cousins, and we all lived within a few blocks of each other. The church members were our entire life. They were our entire community, the only people we were ever allowed to be close with. And the idea of, of walking away and losing all of them immediately in one fell swoop, that they would never talk to me again, that the, the prospect of that kind of loss is just almost impossible to comprehend. I was wondering if you could bring me back to the day when your parents found out that you were planning to leave. Yeah. Um, so 
Yeah, we had my sister and I had been making plans for a couple of months or so. At that point, we had started moving out boxes, and but we kept delaying our exit because we were we were just hoping that if we, we if we could just convince them, you know, maybe we could just move it all back and pretend like it, you know, it had never happened. Maybe we could convince them that they were wrong, and then we wouldn't have to that we would be saved, you know, from our plans. And and so one day, a, a friend. Um, a former friend, actually, she, you know, she had, she knew about our plans to leave and, and she sent a message to our parents, you know, telling them, um, that we were going to leave. And, you know, that of course immediately brought everything to a crashing halt. Um, we, we had barely been able to keep it together as it was. Um, but then when that, when that happened, we just knew this, we can't delay this any longer. We just, we just have to, we just have to explain and we have to go. What was the most important thing that you packed? I mean, you're packing up your entire life and you're not sure you're you're ever going to return. I copied, you know, 60 some DVDs worth of home movies and, you know, watching the scenes play like it was a funeral reel. It was just it was it was horrifying. Um, but it was important for me to have those things to to take with me. But it was also important for me to leave things behind. You know, as I was packing I was looking at all of these letters and, and cards, birthday cards and just, you know, thank you cards, things that my family had given me that I, I kept in this box. And I, as I'm going through it um, and I'm reading, there's a qualification on all of these cards. I love you because you love the Lord. I love you because you walk this path with us, things like that. And so everything that I wrote to my family in those months, it was, I love you forever and ever, no matter what. And I'm always going to be here for you no matter what happens, things like that. And, you know, when you, when you know that this connection is going to be so cleanly severed, um, it, it just brings everything into very sharp focus. So, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. So there's the day you left and, you know, anxiety, trepidation, fear, adrenaline, it's all getting you through the day. And then there's the next morning when you wake up and and this stark reality hits you. And, you know, it occurred to me, it, I, I think it's easy to see your childhood as having been oppressive, right? Bound by the church's ideology and its rigidity. But I do feel that there is an ease that comes from never having to ex- ask existential questions as a child. Every answer is spoon-fed to you. Every decision and action is licensed. And I'm just curious to know, how do you transition to a world, right? You're waking up that next morning. None of this is true anymore. What it felt like for me, it felt like this physical, like I, like I had a giant boulder sitting on my chest and I couldn't breathe and I couldn't see around it. And I had no vision of the future. I had no idea what my life was going to look like. And I had every reason to believe that, you know, the fact that I had so boldly, you know, gone forth in the name of Westboro and, you know, done all these horrible things and that nobody had any reason to give me a second chance. And I had left the only people, you know, who, who had any reason to love me. You know, once it was actually done, there was an enormous sense of relief, too. Along with that boulder, there was this weird, sense, strange sense of relief, um, that I could now live and behave and speak according to my conscience. 
to not have to act for the sake of my family, that I could be upfront with the people around me um, about what I really thought, about what I really believed, and to ask the questions that I needed to ask um, and talk to, you know, to people and try to understand different ways of thinking and seeing the world. Um, it, it was incredibly valuable to be able to be open. When you reflect back on your time in Westboro, it, it must feel at least slightly jarring to reconcile that Megan with the Megan you are today. And, you know, I think it raises some interesting philosophical questions about what it really means to be you, right? I mean, so technically, you were the same physical person, you had the same consciousness, all the same memories, but you held a, a starkly different and harmful worldview. And how, how do you feel about that? I mean, do you actively try and distance yourself from that, Megan? I do not try to distance myself from it. When I left, I did not delete, you know, 20-some thousand tweets, you know, where I had been posting for the church and saying all those heinous things. I didn't go and delete all my Facebook photos and, you know, pictures from pickets and such. And so I still get these memories popping up on my, on my Facebook about, wow. about these things. And sometimes in some moments, I'm like, wow, I cannot believe that was my life. And it does feel distant. But I think part of the reason, part of what helps me have such a posture of grace toward other people and even you know, specifically people that I believe are doing harmful things is because I feel so close to the person that I was. Like I, I remember what it is like to be absolutely persuaded by very bad ideas. And so it, for me, I've, I've been extremely grateful that people have been willing to allow me to show the nuance of this picture, to see the hope in that. Because if somebody is doing bad but has good intentions, you know, you at least have the intentions to tap into. If you can just help them reframe whatever the situation is, then there is a possibility for change. And I just, I am a prisoner to that hope because I know what it's like to believe so strongly in something and then to now believe, you know, completely the opposite in so many ways. I, I admire that despite the discomfort in having to embrace prior Megan, it is essentially the thing that allows you to sustain the empathy you feel. In many ways, it's something you probably feel you have to do in order to feel not fully alienated from your family, right? Like the people that you love, like you have to cultivate this mindset. I believe that I just responded in a very human way to people who treated me like a human being. And that if my family were exposed to the same kind of thing that I was exposed to, that they would have left too. And so they just haven't yet had the experiences that I had for it to become undeniable for me that we were wrong and that, that I had to find a different way. They haven't had those experiences yet, and that's the only difference between them and me. It seems like there are a lot of counterfactual worlds where if things had played out ever so differently, it might have been your family who left and not you, right? And I, I think that's such an important thought experiment because sometimes the best way to empathize with others, to forgive others, to under, try and understand where they're coming from is to recognize that there's not that much that actually separates you from them. What's your relationship like with your, your parents? Do you talk to them? I, I miss my mom so much. We, I, I, we spent so much time together all the time. And I, I, um, 
you know, when I see videos of her now, uh, especially back when there was Vine, I remember just shortly after I left, just watching videos of her um, on a loop, those six second, six second videos, just to hear, just to hear her voice. Um, it's very one-sided. So they don't believe that they can have anything to do with me. You know, I'm this wayward daughter and they, you know, have to show me that, that I'm doing wrong so that I can, you know, understand, understand that I'm doing wrong and, and repent. Um, so largely it is, you know, the, our relationship consists of me sending letters and birthday cards and wedding gifts and tweets. And whenever I'm in Topeka, like I, I always go and like walk around in the, the block uh, where I used to live and I leave something in the door for, for my parents. And I, I don't try to get them to come out and talk to me because I, I'm not trying to put them on the spot or, or make them feel like they're betraying the church or the rest of the family. But it, it's important to me to, to leave those things for them so that they know without a doubt that I have not forgotten them and, and that I love them. And, you know, I, I know, and this is one of the things that I, I think is the reason that I'm not an emotional basket case is that I understand that they love me in spite of the fact that they have completely cut off this communication with me. I understand that they love me and that they're doing this because they believe it is for my good. And that the way that they raised me left me with no doubt of this, you know, deep motherly fatherly love that they have for me. And it's something that I, I, I can't forget and that I, I won't forget. So having gone through such a momentous change, do you fear change? No, I, I really relish it, actually. I think, you know, one of the things that I realized after I left was what an enormous burden it was to feel like I had the answers to everything or that I had to have the answers to everything. What limits that places on your mind and on your life? And now, like, what an amazing thing to realize, like, how big the world is. Like, wow, all these things that I just took for granted as, as true and necessary and the way, you know, it's, it's all questionable and it's all, the, the possibility there is amazing. It's incredible to realize how much is undiscovered and, like, what a joy that makes life. Hey, thanks for listening. Join me next week when I talk with Adam Grant. We discuss how incredibly challenging it can be to change your mind about just about anything. Adam and I talk about science-based strategies we can use to help encourage this change in ourselves. People generally assume that they're less biased than others, right? This is my favorite bias. It's the, I'm not biased, bias, right? Everybody else is biased. I am objective. I see things with perfect neutrality. And I think that the higher your intelligence, the more likely you are to fall victim to that bias. A Slight Change of Plans is created and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. Big thanks to everyone at Pushkin Industries, including our producer, Mola Board, associate producers, David Jaw and Julia Goodman, executive producers, Mia LaBelle and Justine Lang, Senior Editor, Jen Guerra, and Sound Design and Mix Engineers, Ben Tolliday and Jason Gambrell. Thanks also to Luis Guerra, who wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith, who helped arrange the vocals. 
incidental music from Epidemic Sound. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. Megan, I just want to say thanks so much for joining me in this conversation. It was absolutely fascinating. And can you say something back? Sure. Sorry. <laughs> well, I guess the feeling's one-sided, folks. No, I'm sorry. Only one I'm, of us enjoyed the conversation. No, I'm totally kidding. I thought, you, I thought I was supposed to be quiet so you could just talk. Sorry. <laughs> hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.